Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Quick announcement. I am looking for some sponsors to partner with for this podcast. If you think that you might be a good fit to advertise or work together on something with you have permission, maybe you're a book publisher, a university or a seminary, another podcast, a nonprofit in the psychology or religion space, a record label, a band, I'm open. Shoot me an email. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. That link is also in the show notes. All right. Today's episode has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear my conversation with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, so I asked uh, Beth Allison Barr for a podcast episode she had recently done that would be more kind of about the book itself because she's done so many of these that I wanted to sort of talk with her about stuff she doesn't get to talk about very often. And she mentioned a very interesting interview with Preston Sprinkle from Theology in the Raw. He is certainly to my right and I believe to her right on these questions of gender and and Christianity. But uh, Josh is going to put a link to that episode in the notes. So if you want to get into more of the nitty gritty of the book and the history, along with her sort of defending it against some sort of rightward uh, critiques and questions, you should listen to that episode. And we talk a little bit about what's in the book, but we sort of go beyond it to more global questions. 
Dr. Beth Allison Barr, author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel like I'm like literally a full year late to interviewing you for this book. So I have a question for you. Did you like come late to the book or? I certainly saw when it came, like I was aware of it coming out, but then you don't really know, just like with Jesus and John Wayne, like you don't know, by the way, it must feel pretty good. I bet you're grouped in with uh, Dr. Dumay all the time as like these badass blonde evangelical women. we We were friends before all this. I didn't know that. How perfect. The next question people ask me is, did we plan this? No. No, we were just friends. Wow. Um, We've been friends since 2013. Uh, Just in case people, I think most people probably know what we're talking about here, but really briefly, for those who don't, your book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood and Kristen Kobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne, have both been these like New York Times bestsellers. They have certainly gone well outside sort of just the Christian publishing niche and are often named together, you know, in in think pieces and various journalistic pieces about this sort of emerging scholarship coming from within evangelicalism. Uh, The episode that I did with David Gushy uh, talked about both of your books and your work alongside other scholars. And so people can find interviews with you on, they've probably already, if they listen to other sort of post-evangelical podcasts, they've probably already heard you interviewed. So I want to do a brief summary of like, what do those episodes basically say? Let's condense that. And then we're going to go beyond it. And we have a a few ideas of of angles to take. So you're a historian, right? Yes. And the book is about how historically the ideas that we are uh, all very familiar with of complementarianism, this idea that the Jesus is the head of the church and is the head of the husband, then the husband is the head of the wife, and then the children. There is some sort of family hierarchy. It's all tied up with who does work. It's tied right. up with who preaches and who right. teaches and, you know, all that stuff. So complementarianism, patriarchy, whatnot. It's about historically sort of how did that come about and how far back does it go? Give us uh, the Cliffs notes about the, the basics there. I've said a lot that the making of biblical womanhood was actually not a book I ever intended to write. Um, It was sort of an act of desperation because what I knew as a historian undermined what we were being taught in the evangelical church. And it not only undermined it, but those teachings in the evangelical church are harmful, not only because they um, are wrong about the gospel, but also because of the damage that they do to women and men. So I wrote the Making of Biblical Womanhood to try to convey what I knew, what I know as a historian to a church audience, to help them understand how their ideas about male and female roles are not actually biblical, which is what we're told. We're told that it is biblical, that we do these things because God ordained them. And so what I did is I came in and I said, look, these ideas actually aren't biblical. They are built in history. Historians have been tracing this. We call it patriarchy for a very long time. And complementarianism is a particular version, as my mom you know, used to say, same song, different verse of patriarchy. And so the goal of the making of biblical womanhood was to show people how what we are being taught is a God-ordained role for women and men is actually something that is built in culture that isn't necessarily Christian, and that it changes over time because it is based on culture. And so that's one of the things I tried to show them. I call it patriarchy shapeshifts and it shapeshifts according to the culture that it's in. And our modern understanding of complementarianism is patriarchy that has shapeshifted to fit evangelical Southern racist cultural norms. So that's kind of the making of biblical womanhood in a nutshell. I tell people that the thesis is simply that biblical womanhood isn't biblical. It's historical, which means that it's something built in history that oppresses and damages other people. I want to just shout out really quick episode nine of this podcast, which is now like two and a half years old. uh, But Josh will put a link in the show notes It's an interview with Carolyn Custis James, 
Yes. Also a prominent female voice within evangelicalism. Um, and she's also questioning, you know, in her own way. And, and she's she's more of like a biblical scholar, I think, and practical theologian. If people are interested in sort of more of that kind of world historical context of patriarchy and uh, a really cool kind of theological angle on that, I recommend they listen to that episode number nine. Beth, can you just give us like maybe two or three examples of history as it is understood by historians in a consensus kind of a way, undermining this claim that, oh, this is simply biblical. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. I'm going to give you so many. So one of the ones that I I talk about in my first chapter um, of the making of biblical womanhood. And in fact, I've now realized because even though I've entered into this conversation about biblical womanhood, where there are all of these voices that have come before me, I keep telling people I really am a medieval historian. I'm a 15th century historian. So much of that scholarship was actually not stuff I'd read. What I had been reading was women's history scholarship, mostly grounded in medieval lists. Um, and so I start off the making of biblical womanhood with a scholar that I was introduced to very early on in my work at Chapel Hill named Gerda Lerner. And Gerda Lerner wrote this really great book. It has it has a lot of problems with it. it ha, you know, there are parts of it that haven't survived time well, but it was called The Creation of Patriarchy. And what essentially she did, she wanted to figure out why when we look at history worldwide, we find women in similar situations everywhere. We find women, you know, regardless of it's if it's in ancient India, if it's in ancient Mesopotamia, if it's in ancient China, the reasons why they are subjugated are different, but the subjugation is still the same. And so that's what she began. She was like, where, where did this come from? Where does this type of oppressive world system come from? And her ultimate conclusion was that it comes from essentially human nature itself, as well as some of the origins of the beginning of private property in some ways is kind of tied up in this. But what her primary conclusion was is that if patriarchy is made in history, it can be unmade in history, um, which is why I started off with her. But I also bring her up because one of the examples that I use in the book that I think just was so poignant to me was when I began to teach ancient texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of my favorite stories to this day. And what we find in this very non-Christian text, you know, what Christians would often call pagan text, is roles for women that are very similar to what we find in 21st century evangelicalism. This idea that women are keepers of the home, that they are always underneath the authority of men, that they are not the action makers, that they are the supporters, um, that their role is to support and be the helpmeets of the men who are the ones who take charge and make things happen. And it's just such a shocking sort of, because it's like, whoa, that's exactly what we are taught, you know, as evangelical women. But this is a non-Christian society that is very, very different from ours. And doesn't Gilgamesh predate any biblical literature? Oh, yeah. Or at, or at least it's concurrent with maybe some Old Testament stuff. Yes, yes. It has Old Testament. If you kind of think about the um, the time frame, it's like Job is a similar time frame. Okay. The accounting of the story, actually, we have a 7th century version of it, but predates. It's much earlier than that. I often describe it to my students like a soap opera because it always would change. The story would get added onto and there'd be new pieces of it over time. So you have like this core story and then it like evolves um, over time as people keep adding and telling to it. So it's this really wonderful story. But be careful, Beth, don't start applying that reasoning to any of our Old Testament stories. They did. That didn't happen with them. They were beamed. <laughs> Into the minds of the biblical writers, right? Okay, you know, that's a joke. That's, a that's joke. actually a funny. I had this really interesting conversation with a man named Laman Sanahay. He was the African scholar at Harvard, really, really fantastic biblical scholar. I had this really interesting conversation with him about when 
evangelical, that when Christianity began to really see inspiration of the Bible as being this word for word verbal. And I asked him, I said, is there any parallel? Does this happen when Christianity really comes in with, with Islam, with the Islamic understanding of this word for word verbal inspiration? And his response to me was, yes, <laughs> it was like that. Very yeah. And it's just like at no point in early Christian history, the patristics, the councils, all the stuff that most Christians point to as sort of the authoritative beginnings of everything, including scripture itself. At no point do we get any kind of doctrine of word for word inspiration like that. And so then that leads me to think, ah, okay, so what's that doing for people sort of at a psychological or sociological level that we end up with that, you know? I think people are afraid. I think a lot of it is. I mean, I think a lot of it's rooted in the 19th century when German scholars did go really far in deconstructing the Bible and making it really be nothing more than, you know, a a text that was not very trustworthy. And um, the response to that was kind of the pendulum swinging completely opposite, that if we even begin to talk about the fact that there's not really original manuscripts, that that's going to cause people to lose their faith. And I want to step into that gap as a scholar who totally believes the Bible, but is not afraid of the reality of biblical manuscripts. I will step in and say that, that my faith has never been shaken by this. You've never been afraid of that? Really? I really haven't. I think part of it, too, is that I grew up with parents that had more elastic minds and always asked questions. I remember when I was in high school, that fear started developing where I did for a while. I sort of call it when I went my sort of far right turn. But it was definitely sort of a moment that was a change for me in kind of thinking, you know, I've been a pastor's wife for 25 years and I've been a scholar for 25 years. You know, I started my journey as a pastor's wife the same time I started my journey in academia. And so these things have always walked together with me. I've also been formed by some scholars who are still there. You know, I've had voices in my head of people who still believe and weren't afraid. Um, You know, I'm also a medievalist. So Lewis and Tolkien were, I mean, they're medievalists. Dorothy L. Sayers, she's a medievalist. They had a much broader understanding of biblical texts, manuscripts, anybody who works with manuscripts does. And it didn't scare them either. And so I think maybe I had all of that in the background. And so that helped me to not be as, as afraid. I mean, there were times in my life where I probably didn't think about it quite as much. But when I did sit down and really start thinking about it, I was like, you know what? The miracle of the Bible is that the story of Jesus still gets through despite how much humans have been messing with it. Tell me, give me that story as you see it. You know, what, what, give me a condensed version of, because people will often sort of name drop is not the right term for it, but they will mention Jesus or the gospel or the story of Jesus, some, some version of those phrases on this podcast. And oftentimes I don't sort of ask for clarification that I'll hear from listeners later. Like, I'm not sure what that person meant by that. Cause there are of course, alternate understanding. So this story of Jesus that you say sings in different centuries, just can you give us that? The story that comes through is the story of this man who taught something different about who God was and taught something that God was not in the places that we expected. God was not in the power. God was not in the armies. God was not in the men in control. God was with the woman at the well who had five different husbands and was living with a man who wasn't that. God was in the mustard seed. Um, You know, that's a huge image in the medieval world. You know, this tiny, tiny little thing that God was on the side of those who could not help themselves, the most um, desperate, the widows and the children who didn't have protectors, um, and that God always worked with the people who didn't, you know, who didn't have anyone else to fight for them. And you clearly see where liberation theology comes from. I mean, it is in the heart of the message of Jesus. And that despite all of the other types of faiths that were out there, that all that was required was this belief in, in 
who Jesus was and that that is where salvation comes from, that it comes through that faith. And, and that is the message. I mean, that message still stays. And so, I mean, this is just this, this sort of this upside down world that we find in the gospel that stays and that continues. And, and that's why I stay a Christian. I believe in that gospel. I think that when there is something wrong in the church, when there is something wrong with our faith, that it's usually never God. It's usually always us. And I've, I, I've always kind of held on to that because I think she was right. It's, it's usually us. It's not God. You brought in a couple things that, that people don't always combine which is the kind of what we might call the sociopolitical consequences, the sort of us versus them expanding yeah. the definition of us, the liberation of the oppressed, the sort of real world kingdom of heaven on earth stuff. And yeah. you talked about salvation. Yeah. And I didn't get the sense that you meant a merely sort of temporal economic type of salvation or political kind of salvation. So can you talk a little bit about that part as well? Where do you stand on afterlife, judgment, all, all like how does that play into this idea that it is through the grace of Jesus that salvation comes? I tell people all the time that I identify very solidly with Baptists. And and that's not just because that's the way I grew up. It's because I have learned that that ecclesiology and theology matches um, with what I understand. Although I'm also very broad and ecumenical um, because of my historical training and because I think that our choices in church practice um, are really choices. I think most it has to do with our comfort level. It has to do where we grow up with that. Most of them have literally nothing to do with salvation. So that's something that I'm very, that I'm comfortable with, you know, so my understanding of salvation, and I'll say this saying that there's a lot that I don't understand, and I'm actually okay with that. You know, I do think in Christian, the Christian tradition does teach that there is judgment, that there is consequences. The people who are judged are often not the people we expect to be in the places of judgment. I think that's something we should always remember. You know, Jesus is the one who calls the Pharisees, the whitewashed tombs, you know, that they are dead on the inside, clearly saying those are the ones who end up in judgment. So I think that the judgment isn't what we always expect it to be. Um, but I think God does require of us, especially those of us who know the truth, those of us who know what we are supposed to do and then choose to lead others in a different direction. Um, I think there are, I think there are consequences for us. And I think that's why we get warnings in the Bible about who teaches, you know, we need to be wise because we're going to be held responsible for those that we harm in those types of ways. And I mean, I just think about the SBC reckoning that's going on right now, you know, and part of me is just really, I'm just like, I can't, you know, these people, you know, just stop and think about what you have done. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, stop and think about what you have done. So I, I do believe that there, you know, I don't have a full understanding of what's going to happen in life after death, but I do believe that Jesus came for a reason. And I do believe that he that he calls us to him. And I'm very frank and willing to talk about that because I have seen what has been done in my life and in the lives of others. And I also believe that this world was created by a God who's good. And I want to have that goodness returned to this. You know, I want to see that kingdom that is not full of like what we see going on with the SBC right now. And so I believe in that restoration. Beautiful. So a phrase I like from Heather Patton Griffin, an internet friend of mine and multiple time guest of this podcast, is that one, one of the things that we end up doing as humans is we baptize our anxieties as discernment. This is her language. And so I want to try and you like that? Yeah, that's a good. She's an incredible wordsmith. Um, yeah. And so I think I want to pull two things together. I wonder if we find the same baptism of anxiety as discernment in the making of biblical womanhood, this construction of a Christian patriarchy mm. and the way that we tend to read the sort of salvation machine for spiritual laws kind of oh, yeah. uh, version, you know, the, the sort of basic, we're all good, we're all in salvation understanding. So in the case of salvation, it's odd that an entire 
subculture of Christianity would grow up and r- truly thrive for decades and decades that is essentially all about making it very obvious who is in and who is out. When we have a Jesus in the text who's constantly problematizing a simple and who is out, right? Like, so one answer is, well, if you believe that there is an in and out, if you accept that basic premise, then the thing you're likely to have the most anxiety about is whether or not you're in or out, right? Because hell would be the worst possible thing. So we have anxiety that we have to get rid of. And so we will baptize that anxiety as discernment. We'll get a bunch of people to mutually agree with each other that we, oh, well, this is actually what the text says. And it's simple. And it's these laws. And you say this prayer. And now you're good. And now you can stop being anxious, even though the text itself is constantly nagging back at us. Right. And then with the conforming of historical patriarchy to a Christian, whatever, here is where it's maybe a little more tenuous, but I want to say that there's a general anxiety in being human about chaos and order, about sort of the unpredictability of the future, uh, new elements in, in a group sort of upsetting the apple cart and making us afraid. I think you see this a lot For instance, right now, the clearest place that I can see this is sort of the transgender, non-binary, you know, gender fluidity conversation debate topic, which if it were merely a conversation about the, I don't know, 0.2% of people, maybe that's rise. I, I have my own questions about this psychologically and whatever, but if it were merely about the sort of 0.2% of people who are trans, I don't think it would cause the sort of furor and anxiety. I think that the anxiety more comes from sort of different parts of that conversation get at what feel to people like elemental facts of life that if upset would create so much chaos, now that fear might be unfounded. But that that's the kind of anxiety is about like true rampant chaos. And is this connecting for you? I think evangelicals, we've created a lot of our own situations um, and our fear. And also, you know, part of it is by raising up this fear, also creating such an extreme rigidity in gender. I mean, I teach the medieval world. One of the things and, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, you can go to history and we could talk about what's in history. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. This is in history. So one of the things that we talk about in history and, you know, in my classes is that we have a lot of what we call transvestite saints, and they are saints who are gender fluid. (laughs) I mean, I don't care how you feel about it. This is the reality of the text. In fact, there's one text that, that I teach where the pronouns change between he and she, depending on the reference point of, you know, if it's the people who think that she is a man, they reference her as he. If they think that she's female, they reference, you know, the people who know her, who reference her as female. I don't think she actually knows what she is because she was raised from being a young age as a man. The gender fluidity of this saint has nothing to do with her holiness, has nothing to do. I mean, the medieval world did not perceive it in that way. And so, as I said, I think there's a lot that we have come to a world now where we are unable to look at that without being afraid. And it's like, how did we get here? How did we get that here where that history makes us afraid? And and I think that's something that we need to ask ourselves is why are we so afraid? Why have we made our God so small? And that's a question I ask all the time is why have we made our God so small? And I'm not trying to legislate what I think. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of good theology that has been done. And, uh, but I think from the historical perspective, we have made our God really small where we are unable to ask questions or conceive of realities that didn't scare Christians 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. That's history. That's not faith. That's how history has shaped faith. So, so I do think, I think a lot of what we see in going on right now in evangelicalism and even, you know, deconstructing people all the time, they're like, you know, I use that word sort of flippantly in a blog text and I got all sorts. It was really funny. But, you know, for me, deconstructing, 
you know, thinking about is we have added all of this stuff and said, this all is Christian. And when you actually pull away from it, you're like, oh, actually, most of it's not. <laughs> most of it's American Southern culture <laughs> that we have added onto. It has nothing to do. So, you know, it doesn't make me afraid when people are going and pulling that stuff off because I'm like, good for you. That's actually not, that's not, you know, find Jesus. Jesus always surprises us. You know, that brings up an interesting point that you learn if you do any comparative religion research or reading is that what we can really worry about as like syncretism, you know, uh, oh, this, you know, they bring Jesus to Japan, but then maybe the Japanese people misunderstand the sun as being like the actual sun in the sky. This is uh, one of the elements in Shusaku Endo's book, uh, Silence and Scorsese's film about it. I was wondering if that's what you were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, but like when when you look into this stuff, what you find is that basically all religion is inevitably syncretistic to some degree everywhere all the time. And what you're laying out is like, this is the Southern American version of syncretism, right? And so then if that's the case, then the most irresponsible thing to do is to deny wherever we are, whatever faith we are raised with, literally any religion, any place in the world, the only thing you can do to get that really wrong is to say, we don't have any syncretism in our religion. Everyone else is syncretistic about their religion. Right. They're the ones influenced by various cultures. And one of the interesting things that many people have said about white evangelicalism is that it purports to be ahistorical. Uh, it purports right. to be like, well, yeah. there's the early church. There's yeah. a little stopover at the Reformation, and then it's a beeline straight to us, and we yeah. are just reading the text. We don't interpret it. So as a historian, this must be the biggest uh, bee in your bonnet about evangelicalism. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what I did with the making of biblical womanhood is I um, I broke down that ahistorical understanding. I mean, I even started off with, you know, Owen Strachan had that quote where, you know, he talked about these ideas of men and women are, um, are timeless, you know, this idea that they're timeless and that they, um, that this has been written into the stars. I think Elizabeth Elliott was the one who wrote that, that got these male, female roles are written into the stars. And so this, this idea that this is that overarching narrative, um, that has nothing to do with history, except for the fact that it is actually, Instead of being timeless, that it is, we can clearly trace it in history, its development in history, and how it has changed through time. You know, I try to think about where it came from. I think a lot of it came from maybe some good impetus of evangelicalism. You know, one of the things I like about evangelicalism, so you've probably seen a little bit of this with me, is that I'm not afraid to talk about my faith. Evangelicalism emboldens people to talk about their faith. Um, This is something that is not so the case in many other, you know, I love my Catholic friends. They are very strong Christians. They do not talk as easily, many of them do not talk as easily about their faith. I think there are some faith traditions that do not embolden as much. And um, and so that's one of the things I like about evangelicalism. But I think when we talk about our faith in that way, what we tend to do is we also personalize it. That's something else that evangelicals do. We're told to tell about our faith through testimony, which is also why I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood the way I did, because I wrote it to speak to evangelicals. It's testimony. But by doing that, we bring in who we are to the story. And sometimes we confuse who we are with what our faith is. And I think that's what evangelicals have done. Did you know that you could join the Patreon community for You Have Permission? Patrons pay five bucks a month. And what they receive is at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as, when available, uncut longer versions of my interviews with my guests in the normal weekly episodes, and access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. It's an awesome online community, very supportive, um, a great place to ask people for resources, to commiserate occasionally, uh, to celebrate occasionally. So yeah, I believe this episode, there will be an uncut version for patrons. Certainly last week with Matt Novenson, there's like an additional 
20 or 25 minutes in the patron cut. So think about it. Maybe you're on the fence. It might be a good time to do it. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is in the show notes. All right. Back to my fantastic conversation with Beth. The fact that it's always in some sense syncretistic, you know, again, which just means that it has picked up elements of culture that predate the introduction of Christianity or however you want to sort of right. parse that. There's a certain reading of religious life that wants to understandably, I think, give God all the credit and therefore make all that truth like divinely revealed and therefore above reproach, and we don't need to worry about it or question it, read, we don't have to have anxiety about it, and we can have security. And once you acknowledge that there is syncretism and other things have gotten in, uh, that's true. That is a basically unimpeachable fact, but it then requires discernment, which requires uncertainty or entails uncertainty. Um, And now we have to go through the messy work of life. And I think that what I'm seeing about more conservative forms of religion, and my guess psychologically is that this is true in every every single faith tradition in the world, and that it probably correlates with conservative personality types, although I don't know that. There's been some studies that have shown that conservative evangelicals have less imagination. <laughs> so you can do those. Those are interesting. And there is a lot of work being done around sort of these psychological indicators of various personality types, including liberal and conservative. And there's Jonathan Haidt and others moral foundations theory, which is a theory of how we get differing moralities. And and they have shown very strong evidence that there are sort of a differential prioritization of different sort of morals between, broadly speaking, liberals and conservatives and sort of Western democracies and more collectivist uh, global South, global, global majority cultures. All that to say, I understand where a fundamentally conservative person in an unchosen way, if they are given something, if, if they are taught by other people in their life, this is impregnable. It is divinely revealed truth. It is tidy and it explains everything. Oh, it's like the sweetest balm yes. to the soul's anxiety in the moment. Yep. And one way to describe the listeners of this show and this entire sort of post-evangelical movement of, I don't know, maybe 10 million strong or more in America is that we've had that balm taken away by the realities of the world. And there's a pain, there's a hole that that left. In some sense, I don't know that we ever get that back. It's like, can I ever lay at my mother's breast again in the warmth of my mom and dad's bed at one years old? No, I can never go back to that. I'll never have that level of comfort, except maybe very momentarily. But I'll have different things, you know. So I don't know. I guess I'm zooming way, way, way out and asking what you think about that context for Um, the making of things like biblical womanhood, of which there are any number of these things, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think this clearly has to do with how people make sense of our world, how we make order in our world. Um, I think it also has to do, you got right at it with, you know, the comfort with uh, being comfortable with uncertainty, And if we think, you know, uncertainty is actually the very definition of faith. Faith is what we hope for, what we do not see. And so it's very ironic to me that we have tried to make faith what we can see, that we can, you know, we can lay out four spiritual laws and say that this is all, this is all you have to do. Now, I mean, on the one hand, as I said, you've gotten that I am pretty, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus, the way, the truth and the life. But at the same time, I also believe that faith is what we hope for, what we do not see, which means I don't got it all figured out and no one else does either. And that's why I think we have to, 
if we're going to have a faith that lasts, if we're going to teach our children a faith that lasts, we have to have a faith that is willing to ask questions and willing to consider that we might be wrong and willing to consider that God might be bigger than what we have imagined. And I think if we could get people there where people realize that being uncertain is actually okay in faith, I think a lot of people feel like that if they don't that if they're uncertain, it means they don't believe. And I, you know, one of the most foundational texts for me is actually Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And there's this moment in there where the doctor has this um, decision whether or not he's going to believe. You know, he has this sort of this crisis of faith, and his decision comes that he doesn't understand, but he's going to believe anyway. And that text has never left me. And that's what I think, you know, that's what it is, is that we don't understand, but we are going to believe anyway. You know, I worked with teenagers for years. My husband and I were in youth ministry. And the ones that I worried the most about were the ones who thought they had it all figured out right. because the faith was the most fragile. And and um, and I worried what happened when somebody comes to them and shows them a piece that completely undermines what they have built their faith on. And, and what happens is that it often would fall apart. And that to me was always just so, so sad because they had built that, you know, you just think about the parable, you know, building your house on the, on the sand. And, and that's what I think evangelicals have done. We have built our house on the sand. No wonder people are falling away from it. Do you think there is an explanatory element that relates to sheer numbers and let me tell you what I mean. Yeah. So at the time that all of the biblical texts are written, Hebrew Bible and New Testament, at no point in time for any of those texts was Judaism or Christianity uh, or the emerging Jesus way, you know, didn't call it Christianity yet. At right. no, no point way. was that culturally powerful. So the Israelites did have their own sort of plausibility structures if you're in Israel or Judah, but Israel and Judah are very aware at all times that there are these bigger empires around them. They know that they exist. They Their story is that they came out of Egypt, but had their own gods, right? So there's never a time where you can, basically, if you want the kind of plausibility structures, by which I mean, everybody around you agrees. And so it seems totally plausible that we have an ironclad description of the entire world. What you had to do in order to make that feel right in that time was something like Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls community that we now know of, the Essenes, that they had to basically wall them, literally wall themselves off. And if somebody starts to disagree, you just got to fucking kick them out. And that's the <laughs> price for having this kind of homogeneity of belief and worldview. So fast forward to the Jesus movement. And now you, over a decade or so, you have like 60 million boomer evangelicals, uh, not all boomers, but that's sort of the, the core of that group, their children, some of their parents, right? Some, some intergenerational periods, but now you've got like a third, a fifth, whatever of the entire United States, all agreeing on the basics. Now we can do what the early church and the Israelites never could do before. We can have plausibility structures that are across our whole country, multi-ethnic, whatever, ends up not really being multi-ethnic. It's only the white evangelicals, but they can tell themselves that it's everybody. And now you can get these plausibility structures that you never could get before. And that sets up our generation for a terrible reckoning and fall because when we get Wikipedia and the internet and social media and all these things, all the Swiss cheese holes start to show. But before all those technologies, you could really think so. And especially the Midwest and the South, you could feel that way. Am I on to something? This would be, you know, it, okay. So here's the thing. I think that maybe evangelicals thought they had built a more foolproof plausibility structure than actually mm -hmm. ever really existed. So, you know, I would argue as a historian that those types of things never do exist. I mean, you know, we, if we think about the medieval world, you know, people often think about it as being a very closed faith, but 
medieval Christianity was continuously evolving. And some of the things that we hold and we say, oh, well, that's medieval. Well, a lot of those things actually weren't decided until the Council of Trent, which is really, you know, 16th century. You know, so there are a lot, you know, even if even if we think about things like the role of Mary and the role of Mary and her and who she was in, in Catholicism, I mean, that actually is still evolving. And some of the things that we understand, you know, even thinking about the role of the saints, um, even confession and penance, all of those things were evolving. A lot of them have very, you know, we think about, I had this one student one time who I said on his honors thesis, poor kid, and um, he hadn't ever taken an actual medieval history class. And he was writing on this fourth century text and he kept talking about the Pope. And I finally had to stop him. I was like, who are you talking about? (laughs) I'm like, there is no Pope. I'm like, you know, it's, there's, there's no Pope at this time. And so, you know, this, but we, we put these constructs back onto the past and we think, and then we don't realize that those things were much more fluid than we thought they were. And I think that's the thing about faith too. Faith is always more fluid than we thought. Now, I mean, I will say that there are some things like you know, the story of Jesus, the basic story of Jesus and the salvation that comes through Jesus, that has, you know, not been completely untouched, but that thread has been pulled through. History is always about both continuity and change. And so we can follow these threads of continuity. But, you know, I think that's one of the miraculous things about faith is that it was for people who God knew are these, you know, these changeable creatures. And and so I think part of our anxiety is that we keep trying to build these walls that don't really exist. And so, you know, I'll say that very, I'll say that loosely. I'm not saying that faith is whatever we want it to be. It is not always in the eye of the beholder. But at the same time, I think that we do try to grasp on to things that are in our culture and try to make them part of our faith and then get upset when they fall down. I think that somewhere in between what we're saying or swirling around it is like, let's apply it to modern patriarchy and evangelicalism is that it is much simpler. It is much more anxiety reducing in the moment for most of the people in the group to attribute this sort of more lasting, more revealed, you know, essence to these teachings rather than the messy historical facts. Yes. And the plausibility matters because the more people we have within our culture who all seem to agree that this is what God ordained or whatever, the easier it will be to hold that, but that that is always in tension with the fact of the matter. And so you're going to have then this struggle against the reality and the psychologically convenient and to some degree plausible claim that this is settled theological fact, God's design. Yeah. Thinking about examples that um, have been more constructed by culture than what Christians think that undermine our understanding of the Bible. I would say that those passages that we call the texts of terror in feminism, you know, the, the household codes in the Bible that say wives submit to your husbands, as well as the text in Timothy, as well as Titus about women not teaching and Corinthians women not teaching or holding authority over men. Those are texts that, you know, all the time, I mean, people still all today will tweet at me, you know, like you should go read, you know, Timothy and see what, because what he says is very clear about women. And I'm like, it's actually not so clear what he says about women. You know, this is one of our plausibility structures that we have built, that we have built without taking into account the historical context. And so like the example that I give is in 1 Corinthians, um, where we have this passage, this very odd interrupted passage where um, Paul says, you know, wives, ask your husbands at home, you know, and, and what we find when we take that passage and put it back historically is that it is so clear that those aren't Paul's words. Um, Either Paul is quoting someone else, which I find extremely plausible, but at the same time, there's a lot of other scholarship who says that it's an interpolation that somebody took these Roman words and put them into Paul's mouth. Either is actually fine, 
Because what is very clear is that these aren't Paul's words. They don't match with anything else that Paul is doing about women. I mean, they don't match with Junia, with Priscilla, with Phoebe, um, with Lydia. They don't match with any of that. But at the, the surface level is that we see Paul saying wives, you know, are to be silent in church, ask your husbands at home. So I think we approach, evangelicals approach a lot of their faith in that type of very literal, simplistic understanding that doesn't take broader historical currents and context into play. Um, And that has caused us a lot of problems. I want to ask you about the difference between like a binary and a bell curve. This is a, a little turn of phrase I'm enjoying these days. So... One thing that I think that even more liberal Christians, uh, men or women, can get some anxiety on the other end is like, well, what if I do kind of fit traditional gender roles? Like, am I now being a bad progressive Christian? What I have spent most of my time, you know, in this podcast and others fighting against is the binary claim and baptizing the binary in God's design so that every instance of deviation from the standard is seen as, well, that must be evil or demonic or liberal or whatever. On a continuum. Right. But then what I think is more life-giving ultimately and more accurate is thinking in terms of a continuum or a bell curve. And so, you know, personally, my masculinity or whatever, I'm like a seven out of 10. You know, if if one is purely feminine, and I understand that feminine and masculine are also historical and and yes. historically contingent, cultural, and some of those categories change. Some of them are more are more stagnant uh, over time, more static rather. So, like I'm a seven, like in a lot of ways, probably in more ways than not, I have traditionally masculine traits, and then in some ways, I have more traditionally feminine traits. And ultimately, I think acceptance of myself would be best served by a sort of bell curve continuum model, not a binary model. But I think sometimes what we want is we want to flip that binary or we want to do away even with the bell curve, even do away with the continuum, not all people, but that is its own kind of can be kind of a fundamentalist type psychological move. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? A lot of women got offended with my book early on because they thought that I was arguing that women who were, you know, they, they thought, I, in fact, a lot of them, I don't think actually read it, but they thought that I was implying that women who chose to stay home, that women cho- who chose to homeschool their kids, that chose not to work, that this was in some ways that this was a wrong model. And I was like, you've completely missed my point. My point is that We all are different and that God calls us to do things that sometimes may fit traditional gender roles, but sometimes may not. And my whole point is let's let people do what they are gifted to do, whether that fits in what we consider to be traditional gender roles or not. And so, I mean, I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, and I think, I think about, you know, anxiety that, you know, that students that I've had over the years and a lot of it, a lot of they're like, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? What am I going to do? Why am I in college? Um, You know, what are the things that I'm doing? And a lot of them have very fixed ideas about what they should do, the expectations that are on them. And what you often find is they're not sure if they really want to fit those expectations and that causes them anxiety. Yeah. And so you kind of, when you break it down, you're like, well, is that really life-giving to you? Do you really want to major in business? I mean, I had this history student this one time whose grandfather told him he would pay for his education at Baylor if he majored in business. And that kid was miserable. And finally, when that kid graduated, his grandfather apologized. And now this kid has his PhD from Columbia in history. That, you know, I think we do that with women and men. But I think about men, you know, I think what evangelicals have done to men is, in some ways, at least as bad 
maybe in some cases worse than what they've done to women, because we have made all men carry the burden of not only providing for their families, but also making sure that their kids are raised in the Lord and that their wives and everybody obeys perfectly, you know, this sort of model, and that they have to be these spiritual leaders who know what to do and are leading in church and at home. And the amount of pressure that puts on men, especially men who are not gifted leaders, I mean, I can't imagine how that, I mean, I remember one time this person asked my husband if he was, because he's a pastor and they were like, well, you know, how are you going to feel when your wife makes more money than you? And he was like, I can't wait, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it was sort of like that it's not all on him. And, and I think that's what we've done with these evangelical gender roles is that we have put these burdens on women and men and said, if you don't carry these, then you are not doing what God has called you to do. And this has created so much, not just anxiety, but demoralizing the amount. I mean, I wonder about the link between, you know, our, our mental health and what evangelicals have done to women and men by putting these burdens on us that we weren't meant to carry. I think that by baptizing the binary in this sense, saying either you are this or you are this, has created unreasonable expectations that no one can really fulfill. Yeah, I think that baptizing the binary with divine rationale is especially pernicious because divine rationale is essentially infinite rationale, right? It's infinite stakes. And nobody really knows it. I mean, that's the thing too, is that you get to choose what you think your divine rationale is. One of the things that's always kind of a bee in my bonnet around that is like the evidentiary status of any end times theory is yeah. like, I'm a good enough psychologist in training to know that people don't know their reasons for things and that they think they have one reason and it's really another and you can't take people's word for why they believe or do things. Like, I know that. I know that. I know it in my bones. But when it comes to end time stuff specifically, it's like literally everyone has been wrong almost <laughs> by definition. Now, there, you could maybe there are some claims. Get it right. <laughs> right. If they got it right, we wouldn't be here. So or, you know, there, there are less there are claims that fall below the level of it's all going to end. Right. But effectively, yeah. you have to kind of spin them to say that any of them have come true. I guess right. maybe Darby, the nation of Israel, Israel will reconstitute as a nation. So everything's wrong. They've all been wrong. And yet not me, not this time. And, and so the, the ground you have to stand on from which you will take the souls and hearts and bodies of these little precious children into your hands and you will make claims that will affect them based on what exactly this kind of fear and trembling. I'm sure this is just human. I don't, I don't, I don't put it at the feet of Christianity, especially not evangelical Christianity, but there's really something there. We had a kid in one of our churches earlier on in our marriage who their parents started bringing, you know, wanted my husband to talk with her. And finally, what he found out is that she was having night terrors over the rapture because she was afraid that everyone in her family would be raptured except for her and that she would be left alone. And she was I mean, she was literally waking up screaming at night because of this. And my husband, we were like, why are you doing this to your child? Um, you know, it's sort of, I don't know. You can also think about this too with parents. You know, one of the things that we noticed in many of the churches that we've been in is that evangelical parents have this want to start very early on, you know, they're bringing these four and five and six-year-olds and wanting them to get baptized and saying that they understand what it means to believe. And part of that is parental anxiety because they have these, these sort of fears that they have too. Yeah. So, you know, this is why I, you know, as I say, I stay here, I, I stand and I say, I am completely confident in the faith that I have that, that I do not see. 
I do not know how it's all going to end out, end up. But as my husband always says, that revelation, the story of revelation is that God wins. And, you know, I think that that's what we need to, to come away with is that it does matter who we are and what we do. It does matter what we believe. Um, but there's a lot of ambiguity inside of that. And we need to learn to live with more of that ambiguity and not be certain about who we think God is or what we think God has ordained for men and for women, because chances are we're wrong. You know, you've talked about how you still identify as Baptist. You mentioned to me beforehand, you still identify as evangelical. But just from the, you know, the the guidepost report on the SBC cover-up of, of uh, sexual misconduct and all that stuff, one of the big motivators of that of the thinking of the uh, the executive committee via that report is we're protecting the mission of the church, and all this stuff is a side issue to saving souls. Now that is a very simple, black and white, certain kind of marching orders, almost a military type understanding. How is it being a Baptist? Now I, don't, I imagine you're not a Southern Baptist. You know, you're not specifically linked with that denomination, but still in this evangelical Baptist world and not and not leaving it. What's it like as you read that, as you are thinking about your broader Baptist um, community? Yeah, one of the, the good things about being a historian is that we have a broad view on our denominations. And so I know that the Baptists that we are seeing at the SBC is not the entirety of the Baptist world. It's actually a small part of the Baptist world. If you look globally, like the Baptist World Alliance, you know, Baptist is a much bigger, much more global movement um, than what's going on in Anaheim right now. And so, you know, that gives me comfort. I think what's going on in Anaheim right now is a really good lesson for us who are in, who remain within denominations like Baptists to understand what happens when we confuse our denominational identity with the mission of God. I don't think those are the same thing. I don't think being a Baptist is the definition of getting the mission of God right. I think being a Baptist is a way that me in my particular context understands understands my, I guess, my Christian part of the world and can move forward with what I think God's mission is, which is a lot bigger than Baptists in Texas. I think that's what we, I think we have confused that when I hear, like when I saw Denny Burke's quote, where it said for the amount of money that we're going to use to fix the things with the, with the guidepost report, we could send out 75 missionaries. And I like, you have lost the mission of God. Because the mission of God has always been about people. Jesus stopped. He got that sheep, you know, that went. He's met with the, with the, you know, the woman at the well. He met with, you know, it's always been about people and getting people and treating people right. And so by saying that sending out missionaries is more important than correcting abuses that have been done to people through the name of Jesus how much more clear evidence is that than that folk have lost the mission of God and have confused their denominational politics and their power structures with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, you know, I think for me, I'm a Baptist because I like Baptist ecclesiology. I like I like democratic church practices. People are like, oh, Beth, we're quite sure you're going to end up Anglican or, you know, Episcopalian or even Catholic because, you know, I like I'm a Catholic historian and I'm like, oh, no, I am way too democratic. <laughs> I want to have those committees that vote on everything and I want to see transparency in absolutely everything. I don't trust anybody else to make those decisions without a committee being involved. As problematic as some of them, those committees are, I believe in that democratic process. And so that's why I'm going to stay Baptist because I believe in that type of ecclesiology it doesn't always work, but it at least should provide transparency. Um, and where Baptists have gotten it wrong is by moving away from those more transparent structures. So, well, well you got my gears turning uh, down the road. How, because, <laughs> because sort of Baptist and related denominations are in my mind, sort of the primary target for spiritual abuse prevention mm -hmm. uh, and sort of working within those structures because they do have the least general, I mean, it's a rough rule of thumb. They have fewer uh, sort of 
checks. That's a problem. Yes, right? you're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we just have a couple minutes. So why don't you tell us what you're working on next? What should we expect from you in the future? Yeah. So um, the making of biblical womanhood took my life in a different direction than I expected. And so it has enabled me to actually go back to the history department with an endowed chair, which I'm really thankful for. And that has enabled me to um, sign a contract for two more books with Brazos Press. Um, So my next book is called Becoming the Pastor's Wife in which I not only, I'm so excited about this book, um, where I not only tell how the history of how we got this really strange role of pastor's wife, but how it is connected to the decline of um, standalone positions for women in the church, including female ordination. So I'm really excited about this book. It's a lot of fun. I started working on it already. Um, And then the third book, I'm calling it my trilogy. Uh, My third book with Brazos is going to be called Losing Our Medieval Religion, in which I'm going to talk about the cost of forgetting church history for evangelical Christians. Those both sound excellent. I hope in the pastor's wife book, you will disclose the exact moment at which you started making more money than your pastor husband. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Well, hey, we are Baptists. You know, I tell people all the time that our uh, finances are transparent. You know, we put, I remember people all the time, they're like, everybody knows the salary your husband makes. And I'm like, yeah, everybody knows. I, I think that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. I do like that part. And our, our, even our old Presbyterian church did a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Presbyterians have, they have a good like model for that. Like head pastors get, you know, it's something about basically what it costs to live in a five mile radius of where the church is located or something like that, which is like, that's great. Thought. That's good. Yeah. And then they, and they good. sort of publish that. So Beth, wow. Really fun conversation. Um I'm glad that we were able to go kind of wide and not trod over the same ground that you've done a million times. And I know people will have loved it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you. Producer and editor Josh has a band called Household, and right now you're hearing their new song, Something I Said. Their new record is available for pre-order. We're going to play that song here at the end of the episode, and if you like what you're hearing, head to the link in the show notes and pre-order the new Household record. Are we closer to dread? Still the hindsight is moving through my head. Find me the solace is a friend Later find out Say it once again, again Was it something I said? 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 If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.